The battle of wizards and warriors continues with iron swords. The evil wizard Malkil will take the shape of the earth, wind, water, and fire. Farewell! The fate of the world is in your hands! You're listening to the Piercing Wizard Podcast, and I'm your host, Ryan Willett. I'm a professional body piercer with 20 years experience, I travel around the world teaching technique and safety classes, and I'm a member of the Association of Professional Piercers. Listen in as I talk to my friends and colleagues about our industry so we can all stay sharp. Hi everybody, how you doing? Thanks for coming back to the show. Hope you know I always appreciate it whenever you do. My guest this week is someone that I've wanted to have on the show for a while now, and I just never got around to uh, interviewing her. It's a, a Italian goldsmith living in London named Danila Tarsanale. I apologize if I massacre your name a little bit. The American tongue is not so great with international languages, as I'm sure all the people around the world have figured out by now. As a body piercer, if you don't take the time to interact with the people who make your jewelry... It can be kind of a, a lost opportunity. I, I always, I learn a lot. I like to learn about the passion uh, of the people who actually make our products. So sometimes you get jewelry, it's a, you know, it's a little bit cold and, and sterile, you know, no pun intended, uh, because it's just jewelry in a bag that was in a box and has an invoice and you're dealing with people just through maybe social media or a phone call or an email or a, God help you, a spreadsheet. Uh, but when you actually talk to the people, you get their motivations. So just like the clients appreciate it when we care and we want to take care of them, um, I really care that the the jewelers, the goldsmiths, the machinists, the gem setters, the polishers, the the packers, the people working in the office, like I really appreciate all the people that go into supporting our industry. And Danila is no exception. So we, we talk about a lot of different things. We talk about what it's like for those prospective jewelers out there. Uh, you know, it's a it's a craft that you can learn. There are some people who have transitioned out of their body piercing career into more of a manufacturing, smithing type career, and it's always really fascinating to, to see the transition for those people. But you can get some information in this interview, uh, hearing about her university experience and, and how she kind of got into what she does. And now she's at a level where she's a, a master wax carver. You can see some of the, the, uh, the bespoke and before we carry on, when I say bespoke, a lot of American piercers might not uh, understand what that word means. It just means custom, basically. But uh, for a lot of other parts in the world, when you say custom, they might not really fully get it. And when you say bespoke, then they know what you mean. So when it comes to those bespoke pieces, um, those are usually carved by hand. You know, sometimes they can be 3D printed. They can be made in a CAD program, things like that. But uh, a lot of traditional jewelers, a lot of goldsmiths are still working with wax. Uh, and they do a process called uh, uh, lost wax casting. Just to see that process is really fascinating. I really like to kind of understand everything I can about the jewelry that I'm selling because then I can talk to my clients and I can share that passion that comes from the jeweler, that comes from the manufacturer. I can share that with the client. And then they feel a lot better about the purchase they're making. It's not just a piece of jewelry. It's their piece of jewelry and they know like the lineage of it and where it came from. Uh, it, it helps, you know, obviously when you can talk to people about this is what the gemstone is, this has a lifetime guarantee, but sometimes clients really like it when you can say, okay, this was made by this person in Brazil, this person in the UK, this person in California, and made by hand, polished by hand, all these different things, and they can really appreciate what goes into um, the value of the piece, not just the cost of the piece. They really want to understand what they're paying for sometimes. 
So we talk about a couple other things that are that are handy for the piercer to know. Um, talking about maybe our preference between prong settings and bezel settings. Um, jewelers might refer to them as more um, closed settings or open settings, different things like that. Uh, we talk about what's uh, what's body piercing like from the body jeweler's perspective. You know, what are they seeing in trends in the industry and what do they want to kind of point out to piercers that, that might not be noticing the, the different trends that are coming up or the different tastes in, in body jewelry in different areas around the world. And also that kind of brings us into a conversation on our sales approach, uh, you know, not making it pushy and really just letting the client fall in love with a piece, explaining what goes into it, all those different things. Uh, it's a really good conversation with a, a really lovely person who's a, a really fantastic jeweler. Uh, Danila, as I said, is primarily based in the UK. So if you're one of those UK piercers, uh, definitely reach out Danila Tarsanale. Um, you can check out her website. You can see some stuff on social media. If you're part of those UK piercer groups, you can see her pieces popping up pretty frequently. If you're in the US, Danila has been to the APP conference in Las Vegas. So keep your eye out for her, uh, her jewelry in the future, uh, especially check out social media, check out the website again, and I'm sure she ships worldwide. Uh, some other quick industry news. I just got the email this morning, actually, about the nomination process for the next uh, cycle of elections for the Association of Professional Piercers. So if you are a member of the APP, go ahead and check your email. The nomination process will let you put three names forward uh, for the, the upcoming vote. You don't have to nominate three people. You can nominate one person, two, three, whatever you'd like. You can nominate yourself if you want a chance to run for the board. Uh, you can nominate a friend. You can nominate someone you just trust or someone whose opinion you like. But take the process seriously. Don't nominate friends as a joke. Don't nominate people who you think might stir up shit just because you want to be like the Donald Trump of the piercing industry. Uh, really take this seriously because a lot of people on our side do take it very, very seriously. Uh, it's a privilege. It's an honor. Uh, it's something that's really important to a lot of people's careers and not just the people who serve, but the people who uh, benefit from all the work of the people who serve. So take it seriously and make sure you vote. You know, this is just the, the first step of the process. You nominate people. Um, everyone who's nominated has the opportunity to either accept or decline their nomination. And then everyone who accepts those nominations can be put forward on the ballot for the upcoming election. And then again, it'll be up to you to vote for the people who are nominated and decide who you want to support your voice, to support your opinion on the board of directors for the Association of Professional Piercers. For myself, um, kind of winding down for the year. I've got a few more trips left, but not much. I've got that trip in Florida. Again, that class is uh, fully booked. And a thank you again to John Robertson at Tiger Lotus in Fort Myers, Florida for, for being the host there. Uh, I've still got a few spots available for the Atlanta classes. November 18th and 19th, I'll be doing the full day Understanding and Applying Freehand Piercing Techniques seminar. Uh, this one's really going to be more of a hands-on workshop. You're going to be doing a lot of the stuff right in your hands. We're not going to be piercing people. We're going to be piercing inanimate objects, bananas, things like that. But uh, you're, you're really going to get the chance to do things right in your own hand and make sure you really have those techniques and feels comfortable to you. And uh, I'm happy to help you uh, practice any sort of different techniques that you might uh, have in question. Uh, I think on the Monday session, I've got about three spots left maybe at this point. And on the Tuesday session, I think I have maybe five or six, but I'm going to cap it at that. So 
once it's full, it's full. Uh, and this is going to be my last seminar for the year. So I'm not exactly sure when I'll be doing the uh, the full day freehand seminar again. I might take a, a little bit of time off to do it. I'm starting to plan out some 2020 seminars, but I don't really have any cities or, or dates or anything finalized. I just have a few things up in the air. So if you want to come out, uh, definitely come out and join me. We can have some fun and uh, we can peer some stuff. And I, I rented like a cool party house to do it in, so it should be a pretty good time. After that, and I don't want to jinx myself because the, the conference already got moved once, but I think at the end of November, I'll be doing uh, an academic art event in London. So uh, I was supposed to go over there um, within a few days of, of when this episode publishes, but they had to push it back a month because of sponsorship issues, different things like that. Uh, but they rescheduled it to basically the weekend after Thanksgiving, which uh, isn't uh, much of an impact to them in the UK. But to me, I'm going to be skipping the holiday weekend, going over to London, and I'm going to be talking about scarification with uh, a panel of different academics, basically talking about uh, traditional uh, African scarification. I, I know that the person putting on the event is from Nigeria. They emailed me, and it was a really good conversation, uh, a really fantastic group of speakers, um, some pretty serious academics to the point where I'm a little bit intimidated to uh, join a, a panel discussion with them. Uh, they also want me to do a short, maybe 10 to 15 minute presentation, kind of a TED Talk style on scarification. Uh, I have done a, a TED Talk before on scarification. You can see that on my website, precisionbodyarts.com slash scarification. Uh, you can also just find it on YouTube. You can just search TED Talk Scarification and, and that'll pop up. It's called The Intentional Scar. Uh, I'm not going to fully recycle it. I'll probably touch on a few different themes, but I'll show a little bit more of my modern work and maybe a couple little videos and see if anybody gets a little squeamish. But I'm there to uh, represent professional body artists and I'll do my best to uh, try to seem intelligent. So for now, let's go ahead and jump into this conversation with Danila Tarsanale. It's a little bit of a longer interview, but it's got some really great content and I'll be back for a short bit at the end. Hi, my name is Danila Tarsinale. I uh, am self-employed and I work from the UK and I'm a jewelry for body piercing in uh, 18 karat gold. Uh, it's all handmade in London uh, by me in Hatton Garda, which is the jewelry quarter. Um, not many people know this, but uh, it's a quite important and historical quarter of London with um, quite interesting things happening there all the time. Uh, there's a lot of filming happening there as well, quite a lot due to the uh, heist that there has been. Mm. Anyway, my, uh, my, you can find me on Instagram on Danila underscore Tarsinale, or you can find me, if you can spell the name correctly, uh, on www.danilatarsinalejewelry.com. Why don't you spell it out for people just if they don't have a good ear for Italian names? Oh, wow. Uh, okay, so D-A-N-I-L-A. Uh, Tarsinale is T for tango, A-R-C-I-N-A-L-E. And then jewelry is spelled in an English way. So. Jewelry. Jewelry. Yeah, that's that. <laughs> <laughs> so how long have you been a jeweler? Ooh, I started up uh, when I arrived in London. And I think it was like uh, 1990, first thing I did, I thought, oh, I need a hobby, you know. Uh, my background is actually, I'm a bookkeeper, and I still do this for a company, uh, for a laugh, and to change, to have a diversity in what I do. Um, and uh, I arrived there, I did, okay, let's make something, I need something to do. So I went to this class, and the first time I soldered, my heart warmed up. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, well, I need to just do you this. got that flow. 
it was just beautiful and I thought I need to do this for the rest of my life. Mm. Which is what is happening really, so it's not bad. So what were your first kind of designs? Were they traditional jewelry designs or were they for body jewelry? Um, when you learn to make jewelry, uh, you had to make a traditional ring. Mm -hmm. So it was just like an engagement ring really, but so you get told, oh, bring a stone and you create a setting. So that was kind of a, a close setting. Um, and then you make a ring band first and then a setting. And then I brought a button because I didn't want to put a normal stone for this engagement ring. So that was quite unusual button. Yeah, I, I remember. Did I ever tell you that I took a few classes yeah, just just for fun? You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I made a few things, and it was a really fun experience. I, I've I've wanted to make a home studio just for hobby for a while. I just never get around to it. But I remember, you know, cutting and piercing, which means something totally different when you're a body piercer. Absolutely. But uh, yeah, that was really fun working with the jeweler saw and the torch and all that stuff. It's very very. It's like relaxing. It's very calming. There's something about it, uh, when you solder and when you look at a flame melting the metal, that is just so magical. Mm, mm. We're so, alchemists at the end of the day, in a way, yeah, of course, in a very, very romantic sort of, uh, sort of way, definitely. Yeah. So uh, at what point did you start to try body jewelry? Okay, that's a bit of a story there because I actually wanted, okay, uh, am I going to say how I got into that? Uh, so I started to make jewelry and after a few months, um, uh, well obviously I went, I went to London for the an alternative scene. So I was a golfer, I had this big hair, big makeup, you know, uh, corsets and long gloves and high thigh boots and that was the norm from the morning, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, that was fun and London was that kind of place where you could be that every day without people judging you or anything like it, whereas now it's a little bit changed, but it doesn't matter. So, um, made a jewelry for a bit and then I met this guy in a nightclub and I said, I haven't seen him for a while and I said to him, so what you been up to lately? And he goes, oh, you know, I've done something interesting, I, I had a piercing, I had an ampelang. And I said, oh, I've never seen that, what is it? And he said, you want to see it? Said, yeah, of course I do. So he shows me, and we're at a bar yeah. in a club in London, and I'm, you know, I'm not a shy person, but it is kind of unusual that somebody shows you that sort Pulls of thing. Pulls their dick out. Um, he was very decent about it, because it covered the, um, some areas, mm -hmm. and he just showed me that. I said, oh, okay, and what sort of piercings do people get? You know, so he told me, normally girls, we're talking about 1990 London, um, girls normally get a navel piercing or they can get a tongue piercing or nipples or so. Okay, okay, that's very cool, you know. Um, can I do that? And I wanted to do that. So, um, and he said, yeah, I'll book you an appointment. And that was with Mr. Sebastian. Yeah. Unfortunately, this never happened oh, okay. because he was not well. Mm -hmm. um, so my appointment was cancelled and eventually I was a bit impatient, so I made a kind of swivelly thing in gold and I ended up in piercing myself and obviously that rejected, as it would, because not enough skin was, was, uh, was taken in and then I got pierced five times after that. Yeah? Yeah, because uh, back then there was externally threaded and uh, stainless steel and obviously I was one of those people that was pretty allergic to it. Mm -hmm. So were you making your own jewelry to be pierced with? 
Um, the first one, yes, mm -hmm. I did it myself. And the second time around, I was with a proper piercer. Actually, I was, can I say the name? Oh yeah, please. Yeah, I got pierced by, um, by Simon, that was apprentice of the woman that got, that was apprentice of Mr. Sebastian. Mm -hmm. And her name was Tina Marie. Not many people know of her, because now she's not a piercer any longer. So I guess, um, and Simon is a, um, um, is an osteopath and pretty good one. Uh, so I got pierced by him and then that I rejected. Um, and then I got pierced by Grant from Cold Steel originally. And then two more times, one by Tina Marie after that. And then another person too, mm -hmm. can't remember. But that stayed in, oh, by Big Kate. Oh. Big Kate from Apogee. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So when when did you kind of start thinking I want to make jewelry for piercings? Was it for other people or was it for yourself? Um, I uh, how did that work out? I um, I thought it was interesting that you could put jewelry in other part of the body. That you know I was just like a twenty years old coming from Italy and I had never seen something like it. So for me it was exciting mm. and well I had to exploit it. You know, so it's quite magical. Um, I wanted to, to try to do that, but I didn't know how to sort out the threads. And um, so I had to think about something. Not having enough knowledge uh, in the jewelry, I, uh, I had to figure out a way of cutting the threads from somewhere else and soldering them on top, which mm -hmm. is what I did. And eventually when I met um, the guy that then I apprenticed from, he was very surprised because how oh, do you know how to make this? So, well, that's very easy. I cut it from somewhere else. Yeah. <laughs> but obviously that was not the proper way to do it. So he taught me properly and uh, we were using a different threading system. So, um, and this particular person was um, um, selected by Tina Marie that was the piercer and uh, co-founder of Into You in London. Um, so um, he made a whole collection of jewelry, and then he taught me how to do it properly, because he already had a BA. Yeah. Whereas I was just quite fresh in that area, so um, I started up only by doing other education classes once a week, and then that proceeded to going on to three days, and then doing an MVQ, which is a national vocational qualification in the UK. And then eventually I got asked to, to go to Central St. Martins, which is in the UK, is a big deal for, for a university because um, it's very fa uh, famous for fashion designers. So they always say that if you're selected or you apply there, uh, you can only apply as a first choice. I was asked. Mm. Mm. Sorry, I don't want to sound arrogant, but I was nice, and I didn't. Oh, there's a difference between arrogance and just kind of explaining your story. I um, I thought I was very lucky to to get that, and also. How did how did they how did they find you to invite you? I was at an exhibition okay. looking at stuff, and I didn't realize I was getting interviewed by the course leader. Mm. Okay, so and just so a chat simple. turned into a really good opportunity. Yeah, yeah, oh. and I showed the jewelry that I was wearing, and I was already carving at that point, and, um, and this lady um, said to me, oh, I think you should come to Central St. Martins. I said, oh, okay, um, yeah, maybe not this year. So the first time around, I said no. 
because I didn't feel ready. You know, you need to have a proper portfolio to, mm. to go into university. So my drawing skills were not really that good. So to go and do some live drawing and all of that. And yeah, to keep up certain kind of skills. Technically, I probably was already as good as a third year mm. um, uh, at that point. But, you know, when you go into a school, in, into a university like that, you go in thinking that you know everything because yeah. you've done a lot and you got expertise into soldering this and that and the other. But when you learn about design and concept, that just opens your mind and brings it into a totally different field. Mm. Mm. So, did you kind of pivot into? So, okay, when you started, was it like a broad interest in lots of different aspects? And then when you got into university, you kind of narrowed it into more traditional? No, it happened before. Okay. It happened for the body piercing jewelry side. I wasn't even at university mm-hmm. when I started making it. So, I started making jewelry end of 1990. By 91, I already had my small collection. So I had a nipple bar that was kind of uh, Indian looking. I wish I could show you some pictures or maybe um, I'll send them to you so mm, you can please. see the kind of new, well, weird and wonderful things that I was making. So the first navel stud that I made had a flower uh, on the bottom and then I started to make some lilies that had a little pendant coming out from the inside and they were reversed. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I brought those out, they were a little bit too revolutionary, revolution, uh, sorry, revolutionary, I can't say, a bit of a revolution, let's say that, excuse me, I'm a foreigner after all. Um, so they were too different and people could not appreciate it just yet mm-hmm. because all the majority of things that people were looking for were traditional bulk closure or with a stone, something sparkle. But it was kind of ahead of its time. A little bit too, yeah. too far ahead. So having the flowers, I know I made five and within two weeks they were all sold, mm-hmm. which, you know, I was in my 20s. So that must have felt really good. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And then I made lots of bulk closure um, beads and uh, they had all sorts of, they, they were the ones with a dangle. So I wanted a little penis, I wanted a daisy, a heart. I sold hundreds of them. Mm. So by the time I get to my third year at university, I I was already selling quite a lot. It was fun. Yeah, I that must have it. been no really digits. good for you at that point. You know. Yeah, it was good. Yeah, it was really good. Yeah. So I was already selling to into you and back then to Metamorphosis, and then later on came into play Wildcat, uh, Wildcat Belgium as mm-hmm. well. Wow. So when you were in university, how did that change your perspective on the more traditional jewelry that you started making, like with your carving projects or all that stuff? Like what were some of the, the big milestones for when you were in university? Well, first of all, you're given some projects and I always came up with stuff where I ended up in having arguments with my tutors. And the funny thing is, it, it's a little story there because my second year tutor was actually the tattoo apprentice of Mr. Sebastian. Oh. Yeah. So it's like a whole little... It's a whole little thing. Family entwined. Family entwined. And, um, you know, by making stuff for Into You, I... Because um, I became the house jeweler when my colleagues thought, oh, you know, I don't want to make jewelry for body piercing mm. anymore. Did they think it was, like, beneath them as a jeweler? No, not so much. 
it was um, it was getting busier with the carving element of okay. it, and um, there has been a time in which um, the body piercing side went a little bit downhill. Mm -hmm. So at the beginning when the shop was open, and we're talking about was it 1993, I think 92, yeah. 93, something like that. Um, there was a lot of requests mainly for white gold and then lots of yellow gold and I remember Tina, she, she was a super good seller, American lady, um, she, would, she just had a way of selling the jewelry to people, mm. amazing. So what were some of those early trends like? Like when people were requesting white gold, did you have any sort of issues with the alloys or anything, with nickel back or anything? Then, back then, the uh, white gold had the nickel content, mm. but that probably was like one or two years in, and then that was changed. So all the jewelry that was made was scrapped because mm. you couldn't resell it. Yeah. You, know, you couldn't even make a ring, like a normal ring for for a finger with, uh, with this alloy, because obviously um, in the UK, we got an obligation of getting items hallmarked. So we take our items to um, a place called the SA office and they have a special Gander's Day that tells automatically what percentages of alloys are within the item. Mm. Uh, in the past they used to scratch the jewelry ever so slightly and put an acid on top but they didn't know mm. what sort of uh, um, content was in there exactly. So now there's uh, you know, technology ob obviously open new doors. That's cool. Um, so now all this all this jewelry that was in eighteen white got scrapped, mm. and new jewelry was made. Yeah, yeah. But the trend went in the way that obviously everybody wanted to get pierced, and um, we were around old old um, Farringdon Old Street area, and around there the majority of people were into um, media, or so so they had a certain kind of uh, spending money. Mm. Um, so they wanted to have something that resembled the uh, um, back then stainless steel uh, ball closure ring, but they didn't want it in the stainless steel mm. because obviously they had a different taste. Yeah. So, so what were you what were you doing for them? Was it like palladium white gold or? No, it was just traditional white, uh, traditional white that would have diamonds set in the ball closure, um, and uh, soon enough because obviously. If people wanted to have a very small ball closure, um, opening them up was a nightmare for people. Mm. So we had to develop the way of uh, attaching the ball to one side so they could be opened up like a seam ring gets opened up these days so people would not lose the ball. So like a fixed bead ring? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. That's what it's called now, yeah. but back then it was just like, what do we call this? Right. Yeah. So I think a lot of piercers take that for granted when you hear like Jim Ward or other people that created designs or developed designs, you know, so when you talk about something like that where now if a piercer sees it, they just be like, oh yeah, that's a fixed bead ring. That's really makes sense, but we had to develop that because it didn't exist. No, it didn't. So, you know. So what are some of the other things, like some of the other innovations that you've seen with body jewelry since, you know, making jewelry for that application through the 90s and the early 2000s and the 2010s. Okay, um, both me and my colleague Russell, we developed this uh, way of um, making a jewelry and there was never an open um, setting. Mm -hmm. 
I like the labrette that I got that I wear. It's kind of old style, uh, old school in a way, because it's not a cloth setting. It's a, what it, we refer to as a rub over, but people will refer to as a bezel set. Yeah. And, and then you kind of so, like burnish the edge yeah, around the stone. Yeah, you burnish the edge around the stone so there's no dirt that can tr get trapped behind the stone uh, and create any problems with the piercing. Mm -hmm. um, whereas I think that these days, and we were really sorry, shying away from the traditional style jewelry that had a cloth setting because it could trap too much dirt, mm -hmm. dirt on the back or on the sides. And still now, frankly, if I may say, and not being a piercer as well, apologies first. Um, I do not recommend cloth sets to fresh people who have fresh piercings, especially mm -hmm. if one does a knife, they're going to take care of the piercings very well themselves. So, mm. so you prefer, so in piercer terms, Initial, like prong versus bezel, you prefer prong setting? Um, only for a healed okay. piercing. Okay. For a fresh one, I would always recommend uh, a bezel mm. or a rub over okay. setting first. Yeah. But it all depends from what people are like. If you can see that they don't take care of their peers. Sure. Yeah. You know, I, I that that's something that I had to kind of figure out from the piercer side of it because I would do certain piercings and people would always say, Oh, I want a open setting, I want a prong setting or whatever to show more light through the stone mm -hmm. and then it would get gross. While it was healing it would get so much stuff built up in it, you know, or for like genital piercings, they would cause all kinds of bacteria problems. So yeah, having to learn things like, okay, close setting, bezel setting, something nice and tight and burnished around the stone so you, you can prevent those things. That was a hard lesson I had to learn as a piercer. Yeah, and also, you know, these days the majority of my work is close set and I would never think I'll do that. Mm. But I obviously had to adapt yeah. uh, to the request. And it's just, just the quality of the, um, the setting, basically? Well, like the care I that goes into varnishing? I don't, don't recommend the, um, the clothes to be too thin because mm. if people are quite, um, how to say, um, they, might, they handle badly the jewelry, the stone can pop out, pop mm. out quite mm. easily, you know, but obviously, so if the clothes are very thin, it's not going to stay in place. And, it, you know, there's also, depending from where it is on the body, there could be wear and tear. Yeah. You know, the, the cloth could get caught into something. Imagine you got a fresh piercing with a cloth set and you get caught into cashmere jumper. Mm. Pain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for any kind of... Uh, prong setting, claw setting, stuff like that. Uh, for piercers that are listening, you know, really think carefully if, just like you said, if it's going to catch on things or if it's going to be problematic because I, again, when I was piercing with a lot of prong settings, people would catch it on their hair, people would catch it on their towels, all those things. So yeah, like a nice, a nice tight bezel setting or like a gem ball type of a setting or something like that is. Yeah, and also it will stay a lot cleaner in the back. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm one of those people that when she wears jewelry has to be in the same position. Look at my hands, are full of rings. They have to be in the same order all the time. And my labrette I probably have not changed since I got it done the second yeah. time. But if it's a, if it's a really nice setting, because I, I don't like to change my jewelry frequently. I don't want to have to take it out constantly to clean yeah. it. I want to be able to live with it. So again, yeah, having a really high quality setting. Uh, I, I think if you're going to spend hundreds of dollars, hundreds of pounds on a piece, you want it to have a certain kind of like versatility. You don't want to have to yeah. take it out every yeah. week and clean all yeah. the and gunk out for, of it. And also for people who, who invest in this type of jewelry, which is more precious, you know, 
it's a little reward and it's quite nice. Yeah, some people like to change and swap and it's all good. Uh, but for some other people, they just wanted to have it there with them and it kind of merges with their body mm -hmm. where, you know, becomes part of the landscape. Yeah. So settings, you had to kind of work out what settings you thought were best for piercings. What other stuff, you know, sizes or different threads are now like threadless, all these different things. Okay, we've always done, I say we because obviously I learned from somebody else and so it was a kind of long time apprenticeship. Um, but the uh, sort of uh, push fit or how it's called now, threadless, is something that we're always did for librettes mm -hmm. and also for nipple bars, especially the ones that had the front facing stones. So that you knew that the stones were always facing in the correct way because mm -hmm. you could just like slightly angle them um, if it wasn't when you inserted it. Um, that always worked. There was never an issue and I always prefer it as, um, as opposed to um, a screw thread. Yeah, well, so I, again, from the piercer perspective of it, uh, when I started trying to use a lot more forward-facing gems, it was, it was a pain to have them threaded and sometimes if the threads Same weren't twist. perfect and exactly. didn't align perfectly. And now that titanium companies and more, you know, I don't really want to say, it. what's the better term for it? Not to say traditional materials for body piercing, but how would you refer to like titanium? Would you just say titanium? Yeah. Basically. Okay, so the titanium manufacturers now are starting to catch up and think, make pin ends for their forward-facing gems, and they're much easier to attach and have aligned and all that stuff, but uh, I never, I don't think I ever saw a gold company using pins for forward-facing gems in the, in the States anyway. Uh, no, but I don't know, am I going to say, am I going to say this, shall I? You can say it, and if okay. you don't, we can always yeah, edit we can it. Take it all. Uh, right, so I know that the first year that uh, my colleague Russell made a collection of jewellery for interview, um, with, within yeah, a few months, somebody came from the States, bought one of everything, and then there you go. Copied it. I don't know what or happened there. Got inspiration but it got from inspired. It. Let's yeah. say that that's a bit more PC yeah. these days. So um, yeah, and that was that. So it, it was making all the stuff with the screw threads. I learned all of it. So some labrets uh, were screw threads, um, obviously internally threaded already back then, because uh, naval studs were either externally threaded or internally threaded. But lots of them were internally threaded already. Mm -hmm. I feel like uh, precious metal jewelers were top. ahead of the curve when it came to threading because I think a lot of titanium and steel manufacturers were really slow to catch on to external versus internal, but I think more of the goldsmiths were starting with internal thread. Do you think that's uh, accurate? Yeah, it all makes sense, obviously, because number one, they were engineering onto lathes. Mm -hmm. uh, we use a different approach when we're constructing, let's say constructing uh, um, um, a labrette, for instance. You create the base and then you have a chenier that you have threaded before and then you solder the, um, this chenier on the top of the disc. So is the chenier, is that the post? Tube. tube. okay, all right. I don't know some of the jeweler terms. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, so, you know, it's easier to, to make it in that way, but if you have a machine and you've got a lathe, obviously you've got a program in the machine that is going to start from a rod and then cut the whole piece down, so creating a lot of waste. Mm -hmm. And every time you create waste, it depreciates. So it's not convenient to do it in that way. 
Makes sense. Uh, so, what what did you see? Like, what kind of changes did you see in the industry when it went from in the '90s when the it feels like generationally, people that were getting pierced in the 90s were getting pierced for more intimate reasons or things, and then as it yeah. turned into more of a fashion trend, what are some of the, the jewelry trends the, that you started um, to notice? Uh, I remember the people now, they ask me how to make jewelry for body piercing, were laughing at me back in the 90s and even a bit later saying, oh, do you still make that body piercing jewelry? You know, because... Uh, they thought it was a little bit too kinky, and obviously they knew as well that I was part of the fetish scene and all of that. Um, so ma the majority of the jewelry, yes, it was for a genital piercing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm. now it would be perhaps. Nostrils and ears. Yeah, mainly. Yeah. Do you miss it at all when body piercing was a little bit more personal? I, I enjoy the fact that I, uh, you know, I actually have changed jewelry on people, male or females, mm -hmm. and um, I think I feel privileged to say that I made jewelry for someone's privates and it's been looked at a lot or been played at with a lot. So um, there is a cuteness about it, definitely. Mm. Yeah. So. Uh, and people that have diamonds on too, right. you know, it's kind of nice. Yeah. It's very, it's very private and it's part of that world where. You know, you can see somebody with a suit, as you know, and um, they probably have so much jewelry um, underneath their clothes, and nobody's never going to know. I think a lot of I think a lot of body piercers know how to spot that, especially if they come into the studio when someone comes in and they're they're dressed very nice, like a business professional, and you don't see anything visible, but you know that just yeah. below they're covered. Yeah. 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 So back then there was lots of um, um, lots of rings, lots of PA rings, or I, I don't know the term for it. Um, what what is the hole that is in the ball sack, the one on the bottom? Uh, I always forget it. Geesh or just scrotum piercings or? Uh, okay, ball sack is there in the middle. Uh, I think it would just be scrotal piercing. Okay. Really, I don't think it has a fancy okay, name. So I made um, a ring that had 15 millimeters in, um, in thickness mm -hmm. and had 19 internal diameter, and I made it all hollow. Okay. It took me 32 hours. Wow. So it was like in one, two, three, four, about six or seven parts with two screws that were fitting, and I had to measure everything up and fit it as well. Oh, do you mean a transcrotal? The, like the body mod, like the one that goes all the way through yeah. the scroll. Oh yeah, a transcroll. Wow. Okay, so you made a gold transcrotal ring. That must have been cool. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It was very, very cool. Wow. Yeah. With all like screw closure? And so. two screw closures. Wow. Yeah. That sounds really cool. Yeah. Complicated. So it was complicated, but I'm always up for the challenge. You know, if somebody is happy to have something quite different, yeah. Hmm. I'll do it. What has it been like dealing with the really big spikes in the materials, you know, like making gold jewelry 10 years ago versus making uh, gold jewelry well, now. Okay, making jewelry, ten, well, 10 years ago, uh, well, it was a lot cheaper. Let's say that, um, okay, in the 90s, the main things that I was doing was internally threaded uh, navel studs with very large stones, or they were hinged, obviously, so if you have a quite a large stone on the bottom, if it was um, uh, soldered on the back of the stone, 
you know, it wouldn't be very comfortable, especially depending if somebody was a bit bigger around the tummy area or not. So there was a, a need to have a hinge on the back mm -hmm. of that, so for, for comfort. So that's that, PA rings. I still have some, some left, but I think I keep them for my personal collection. Um, yeah, PA rings with diamonds and uh, like a five millimeter, a six millimeter gauge. Um, for for PA with a nice diamond on that was pretty cool. Mm. Um, lots of um, jewelry for labias with uh, pendants on there as well, of all sorts of different shapes and forms that were used a bit like a weight. Do you feel like people were more into much larger and like fancier gold jewelry when? Maybe it was a more accessible price because of because of like the gold market. Do you feel like now today it would be much tougher, or like if somebody wanted a, a six millimeter thick PA jewelry, uh, do you think they might be intimidated by the cost because of how much more expensive gold is now? Uh, well, gold has gone up quite a bit yeah. in the last month, mm. so I'm gonna have to reprice everything mm. uh, soon enough but it's destined to go up by 20% by 2020. So I was reading on, on the internet, but this might be, might not be, we don't know. Um, I think that gold, gold is always seen as an investment. So people that like it, they don't care what they're gonna pay for it. Mm -hmm. In the UK, I, uh, I sell mainly 18 carat. I never made anything in a lower carat. Mm -hmm. I do do some ear weights that are in silver, but that is as far as I'm prepared to go. Yeah, yeah. What would you want to tell body piercers if they're thinking about, you know, a lot of piercers now are just starting to think about getting gold in their studios, and they're, a lot of them are probably looking at 14 carat because of the price difference. So what would you want to tell them about just the quality between 14 carat and 18 carat or some things that they might want to consider? Um, it all depends, I think, from what they're able to sell, but I gotta say that when um, Interview started up as a shop, it was not the trendiest part of town. In fact, the landlord uh, thought that uh, the owner was quite mad and wanted to open a shop in that area. Mm -hmm. So that's why they could have a very cheap rent. Um, so it all depends on how, what sort of uh, message you put up there. If you're somebody that um, doesn't take care of your personal appearance, you're not going to be able to sell gold. Mm -hmm. So you need to look the part. Mm. And no matter where you are, I think people are inter inter interested in quality. They might save for it. Um, and if not, they can just like, put a deposit and come back later, or you can sell it to them as a you know, normally what I say to people, you, f you can't afford it yourself. Maybe this can be for a special occasion. Mm -hmm. So you can have friends chipping into your birthday or Christmas is coming and everybody likes to have a nice little trinket. Mm. At the moment, I'm getting lots of requests for diamonds. So instead of having larger diamonds, obviously we know they're more expensive. Um, so people started up with the small ones and they proceeded to have larger one later on or maybe they're gonna get them into an engagement ring perhaps. Mm, mm. Some people have asked for 
engagement body piercing rings. Really? Yes. Yeah. So instead of having a traditional uh, ring on their finger, they just have a, uh, a conch ring with a diamond that looks like an engagement ring. That's cute. That's a cute idea. Yeah, yeah it is. Uh, going back to what you said about you have to kind of look the part to sell the jewelry, that was another thing that I had to really learn how to present myself as someone that could create the confidence for a, for a client to say, okay, I'm, I'm comfortable spending $500 on a piece of body jewelry because the environment seems like the place that you can trust. It wasn't just everything covered in stickers and heavy metal music on and, you know, just tattoo shop kind of feel. You know, I had to make it more of a jewelry shop kind of feel to be able to reflect the sales I wanted to make. Okay, so Into You was exactly that place with the stickers mm -hmm. and uh, the heavy metal music in the back and people looking dressed like they probably just came out of bed sometimes. Mm -hmm. so, but that was the look. Yeah. And for that particular type of shop it worked, but obviously now things have changed. Mm -hmm. And I think, yes, for um, a, t a body piercing and tattoo shop that is opening now, you need to keep an account that people have changed, they're not the people of the 90s that probably were punks mm -hmm. in the early, in when they were teenagers yeah. or so, or, you know. Goth. Goths or so they, they don't go maybe to squat parties like perhaps I've been or, <laughs> or something like that, but they go maybe to Saw House or um, places where you go a membership where you pay over £2,000 a year. So I think that clientele has changed and people had to adapt to that. So the most important thing before you venture into selling some jewelry that you don't know if you're going to sell or not is to analyze your um, the clientele that comes into you and do a little bit of marketing and ask them and also look at what they wear if they wear bags be sensitive to the kind of jobs that they do you know for instance all the golfs that um, wear golfs when they were in their 20s now they probably have paid a mortgage and mm. they need to wear a suit perhaps for work but they still want to have piercing jewelry on but it has to be a little bit more classy so I would say as a suggestion, just like be very sensitive to the kind of clientele, ask them questions. People like to talk about what they do, what not, are you a student, um, you know, do you pay for your own education, do your parents pay for your education, um, what's your demographics? Uh, obviously you can have an idea of what is your demographic on Instagram mm -hmm. if you've got a business um, account and you can see for instance I can see the majority of people that follow me are from 16 to 25 that's quite a lot of them and then the majority of it is actually from 25 to 45 so I know that those people are going to be interested more in the sort of high high profile uh, type of jewelry and they would want to wear diamonds they could be fashion diamonds for what they could be champagne colored, they could be more opaque or the salt and pepper ones. Um, but lots of requests is if you choose a diamond, it's a clear one because everybody wants to be a princess, male or female. It's what it is. Yeah. I don't know. I, 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 I'm pretty particular on champagne diamonds myself now. I like them. Yeah, I do too. But I remember I'm wearing one here when. When people saw that the first time, they go like, oh, champagne diamonds. And it used to be very, very modestly priced. Now they've gone up. Yeah, well, it's, like all the marketing in the U.S. now uh, is like 
chocolate diamond and things like that, you know, but 10 years ago, they'd just be like, oh yeah, it's a you know brown diamond, whatever. It's, it's yeah. much less expensive. But now they market it as like all these different, you know, ocean blue diamond and all that. And now it's like, now we can charge just as much as a, as a nice clarity white yeah, diamond. Yeah, and the black diamonds that um, apparently they found next to where um, meteorites have fallen. Hmm. So, and they don't have, they got a similar composition but it, to, to, the, to the diamonds, but this is why they call them space diamonds. So they're like kind of fallen stars, hmm. you know, and that's why you should have black diamonds. You know, if you feel you're a fallen star, so you should go for it. Okay, a couple of black diamonds. Yeah. What's what are some of your favorite stones personally to work with or to wear? To work with, I love sapphires. Mm. Uh, most people think that sapphires only come in blue, but it's not true. Yeah, white sapphire, um, different colors. There's white sapphires that I tend to use instead of CZs, uh, because I try not to use stones that are man-made. Sure. I feel like I, a lot of jewelers are in that same kind of thing, like why would you take a synthetic stone and put it in this beautiful piece of gold? Let's say that a CZ might be more sparkly than a white sapphire, mm -hmm. unless you're prepared to pay quite a lot for a white sapphire. But I like the orange, I wear, wear them in my combs mm. here, they look very pretty, I like yellows, they come in all sorts of gradients, so it goes from a very pale yellow to a super orange, or they are also purple green, you know, you got them all. Mm. They're uh, beautiful. Yeah, I, I tried to experiment for a little while because I started with cubic zirconia, obviously, just for budget reasons. Yeah, sure. And then I started to say, okay, well, white diamond, just right to white diamond. And then I started thinking, well, okay, maybe maybe I'll take a look at the other clear stones, white sapphire, mosinite, all those different things. And my customers didn't really respond as well to it because mostly clarity issues because I, I don't know enough about stones to get certain graded stones, different things with clarity. When I order it, it's just like, oh yeah, it's just a white sapphire, nah, you know, and then it would come in and it would look more like glass than a gem sometimes. You know? Unfortunately, white sapphires can look a little bit more dull. Mm. So that is the issue. But, you know, there are also, um, instead of using those, because of late, I actually had a bit of a problem uh, because some of them get, um, actually no, it's not them. Um, the white sapphires are fine, but um, I had to swap to white toppers. And the white toppers um, had a problem uh, because these days they get treated. Mm -hmm. So the ones that, especially when you're talking about small stones, um, they get heat treated, but originally they were brown. So when they go through an autoclave or through something that damages the surface, in fact, I had to call the person that sells Rapidex in the UK and, um, and discuss why did the stones change color? Mm. So I discussed this with my stone dealer and they told me, oh, this is impossible, you know, they're, they're heat treated sometimes, but it's not supposed to happen. So what creates the problem? So we kind of came to the conclusion that using RapidX into the ultrasonic for too, too much of a long period of time and not rinsing the stone too well, so leaving the residue. So the chemical residue is what's mis yeah. discoloring or um, causing the discoloring. Is there not just, and then the going into the autoclave mm -hmm. actually um, damages the stone. So okay. in the long run, you, they don't they don't become brown straight away, but it happens over like within the period of a month, 
Uh, then I had, it happened twice only, because then I took put a stop and said, no, I'm going back to white sapphires or diamonds, that's your choice. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to go for a lower uh, kind of thing. So um, I, I had to check and I kind of go, oh my God, this could just ruin everything, you mm-hmm. know? What would you do if you... Oh, gosh, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like as a... As body piercers, we have to make sure that we're dealing with jewelers who will kind of back up their their products. So I think a lot of times when a piercer deals with a discolored stone, the first thing they're going to do is just go straight to the jeweler and just be like, it discolored, will you, will you replace it? So I think it would probably be more frustrating from the jeweler's side of it if a stone discolors. Yeah, because it's not our fault. Yeah, so as a right. jeweler, you know, you have to take all responsibility. You use a stone setter, they smash your stones, you pay for it mm. because they don't take any responsibilities. Um, you go to the stone dealer, they, uh, their stones may be cracked when they, uh, when they go to the stone setter, you pay for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we have quite a lot of pressure in many ways, but you know, we're happy to do it. What are some of your more frustrating stones to work with? Because I know some jewelers think, you know, opals can be frustrating because they're more fragile or like a pearl or something like that. What are some of the ones that are more challenging to work with? Well, it depends what people want. Obviously, it depends where that goes into. If it's like more traditional, say, normal jewelry, like rings, necklaces or so, opals are fine. Um, but they just need to be set in a certain way. Obviously, if if you buy a very expensive opal and you get a set in a pendant and you don't select your 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 setter correctly and they smash your stone, mm. you lost quite a bit of money. Yeah. yeah, yeah, especially with the size of the opal, I'd imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know. Um, but apart from that, okay. So opals can go in the ultrasonic, although. I have put in a couple in the Sonic and they were fine. Mm-hmm. Um, there are different type of opals. Um, there are some of them that are called triplets, so they go a slice of black in the back. Um, just like to make the uh, stone look a little bit more sparkly from the top and bring out the color difference. Um, uh, so those ones tend to be a little bit cheaper in comparison to the white ones or mm-hmm. to the fire opals or you know pink opals tend to be less expensive, but they all basically just look like a lump of pink. Mm. Um, so people look at them and just think, oh, what is it? But, you know, they could be carved in a different way. Um, yeah, I guess it's down to the setting, really. The Ethiopian opals are kind of fun. Mm. But if they go into ultrasonic or they go into water, they could lose the little specks okay. inside. I think all these things are better discussed with them. somebody who's a stone dealer mm-hmm. or, you know, has got a gemology course. Yeah. So. It can be really intimidating as a body piercer because a lot of times we have to play catch up to industries that have spent years, decades learning all these things. So uh, a jeweler would maybe think of an alloy or think of a stone or think of a setting and they're like, okay, well, this would work with this, but not this and this correct application. And as piercers, we're just like dumbfounded sometimes because we focus on sterilizing it and installing it and all these things, but it's really difficult to kind of play catch up and learn all these other jewelry aspects and issues. And 
I'm trying to learn as much as I can, but it's still, I'm, I'm, I'm lost when it gets to a certain point. Well, as a jeweler, right, to learn as much as possible in order to know, you know, point of entry is in the body where you put the jewelry or how you're going to close a very tiny ring mm. when he's in the body. You know, I've got strong fingers, you know, and I've got muscles here on my hands, so I probably could do that. But yeah. A piercer that is kind of new uh, and he's probably has to put a very tiny seam ring mm -hmm. part of the butt, the ear that is so like tiny a six mil diameter little six thing. Six millimeters, and yeah. you say, when I get somebody asking, oh, can you do a six ID for 1.2? I say, no, mm. just go for one millimeter because you're not going to be able to open and close it. Right. You know, it's yeah. not going to happen. That's what I had here. My, I, I, for me, I think I would be okay <coughs> changing it. Uh, and for the people listening, it's a forward helix. I have a little six millimeter quarter inch diameter. Uh, I would I would be okay doing that on someone else, but I asked my other piercer to do it for me, and they were just struggling so much with it hmm. and not having. So that's why you end up using pliers. Yeah. So in order to um, cross the jewelry, I um, there is one piercer I work very closely to. Can I say a name? Sure. That's Rihanna Jones, and uh, we worked together in the shop for seven years. So. I did teach her a lot. Mm -hmm. Like I learned a lot from her. Yeah. Because I sat in some piercings. You know, it's important. It, it's a job that goes hand in hand. So I am. Um, I'm actually considering, and I did consider doing this in the past, to um, to learn how to pierce. Mm -hmm. So it might happen. It might not. Because I actually love making jewelry a lot, and so that. If I expand massively, having to hand over the manufacturing to somebody that is going to come and work for me, it would be really sad. Because mm. I like to have this feeling that I made something for you. you I know? think it's a big drive for anyone in like an artisan craft is you get the satisfaction from taking it from start to finish and Absolutely. seeing that final version. Yeah. yeah, from going to buy the metal, going to source the stones. Sometimes I look through 50 stones or 100 stones before I make something for a client. Mm. Mm. That sounds like a really nice process. It is, yeah. you know, but I spend over an hour at the stone dealer or sometimes I go to two or three different ones and then to be um, reputable stone dealers because I need to know where the stones are coming from. Mm. You know, they can't come from conflict areas. Right, right. Yeah, I, that's that's another that's another aspect of it. Is as a body piercer, when we just pick a company, especially how right now it seems like so many gold body jewelry manufacturers have been popping up everywhere, and you can't really trust someone blindly. You have to do the same kind of research that you would do with anything, like what's it made of, where do you get it, how do you verify what it's made of, all those different things. You know. What kind of solder are you using? Is there anything toxic that I have to worry about in your manufacturing process or all those different things? There's a lot for body piercers to try to keep up with. Yes, there is There is quite a lot. But, um, you know, it's an enjoyable process and it's all about knowledge. Mm -hmm. And um, the more you know, the more you can pass on to your clients as well. Mm -hmm. And you so, seem so much more professional when you can give them that information. If someone comes in my shop and they want to buy a $500 item and they ask me questions about it and I'm like, Ugh, I don't know. I just, I order it from a company and they send it to me. But if I can tell them, this is the gold, this is the gem, you know, lifetime guarantees and this is how the stone was set and all this, like it just makes it so much easier of a process and they can trust you so much more as a professional and they can trust the product when you can actually answer those questions. 
Yeah, I'm certain it's important to become a storyteller. Um, I learned it later because I went to a lecture from uh, one of the buyers for Fortnum and Mason, which, you know, it's quite a big, renowned shop in the UK. Um, and they told me that um, the uh, set assistants are no longer called set assistants, they're mm -hmm. called storytellers. And people that shop in this kind of very high-end shop, they want to know, and they want to know very specifically where things are coming from, who made them. Mm -hmm. They don't want to know that things that come from uh, the Far East, from a sweatshop. They want to know that a local jeweler mm. has made this and is made in this area, the gold is coming from this This is area. made by a master carver from Italy who has moved to London. And that's a good story. But I was a master carver in Italy. I was a bookkeeper. Oh, okay. Uh -huh. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, there is a little story there. And, yeah, we can always tell a story. Mm. People like to listen. We did, we did that when we were children. Yeah. That makes sense because that's how the that's the best sales interaction when you're not trying to sell when you're just explaining and then they fall in love with your explanation you know when you can say it's this beautiful material and it's this beautiful stone and you know brings out the color in your eyes like you make a personal connection to them instead of just saying like you know some jewelry just buy some jewelry no. um, when I see people because obviously I worked on a counter for 16 years like one day a week and this is what I was employed to do just like to get the orders on uh, body piercing jewelry so we were the only body piercing shop in um, in the UK I think I don't want to say anything wrong uh, but back then for sure um, that had a uh, in-house jeweler mm -hmm. um, and somebody that could offer bespoke. In fact, other people like Wildcat um, that were in common town or Cold Steel or so, they were referring um, people to us mm -hmm. when it was bespoke. Yeah. And um, so I wear, I wear quite a bit of jewelry on my hands and I always had a diamond on my chin and occasionally a diamond in my ears and my nose. And stuff. So it was like visible jewelry. And then when people speak to me, I normally ask them, um, I look first of all what kind of metal color they wear. And um, you know, for you, I can see that you mainly wear yellow gold. So I would go for that. Although I think that for the, the complexion, the tone of your skin, you can get away with uh, a mixture of white and yellow as well, if the metal was intertwined or so. And um, I can see you're a classy man. You will go more for a clear or kind of champagne color stone as well. But because you got quite dark eyes as well, I would suggest maybe two obsidians in your conch because obviously would um, bring your eyes out a little bit more, especially with your haircut as well and with the beard. It just like, kind of creates a very nice ensemble. Mm. Mm. Thank you. Mm. Mm. Sounds lovely. Would you like some obsidian for yes, your conch? Please, yeah. So, yeah. You say it's important. Um, some people will, will listen to that. Some people say, well, I don't actually like this color, but can we do something else? And then when you show it to them against, against the color of their skin in front of the mirror, that's where they make their choice. So you can say, I think this is going to look better for you, uh, or I would choose this. And if they came in originally, having a very dark colored skin perhaps and wanting to wear white gold and then realize that maybe once they look at themselves in the mirror with maybe a, a yellow gold or a rose gold 
it will look a lot better. Mm. That's what I try to say to people is sometimes your complexion, uh, the jewelry can almost look cold against you rather than warm and all those things. And just being able to talk to someone honestly like that, because I think that some piercers get really focused on, uh, I need to sell these pieces to pay my rent, but they're not thinking, what does the client want? Because you want to you want to get the right jewelry for the person instead of just getting it's them to service. buy something. Yeah. Yeah. I um I don't want to just sell something to people. Otherwise, I'll be selling maybe computers or mm. something else that could make me more money. But you know, it's important that people have your trust. Yeah. Because that's why they come back. Yeah, this is why they come back. And when you have the trust of one person, they will recommend you to more people. Mm -hmm. And once you have one person in the family, then you have the whole family. So the best clients are the returning clients. Mm -hmm. And it's a very, very important thing to understand. You know, they're, they're going to refer you to the friends, the friend of the, the friends, because we're about communities at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. So people come to get pierced because they're looking for a change in their life, you know, some adornment, some, you know, all sorts. To mm -hmm. exercise some pain in some ways or just a change. Yeah. That's going to bring something new to them. Mm. And you're creating that bit of magic for them. Mm. You do. It's always nice talking to the people that are really into jewelry because they have this personal connection to it. It's not just a commodity. It's like a it's like an experience and it's just nice to see it. It always is. Yeah. You know, if I wanted to sell you a pair of shoes, I would have to observe the, the shape of your foot, I'm not going to give you a pair of high heels, you mm -hmm. know, because you're not going to be able to walk onto some women. Practice, I'll practice. No. Okay. Um, but some women want to wear high heels and then they go, oh my God, my feet really hurt. Mm -hmm. So it's about, about of, um, also thinking form follows function. Um, if you're going to wear something very spiky in your ears or so on, your nose, you're going to get caught into something. You need to be aware of it. Mm -hmm. Um, like I was speaking to this lovely uh, piercer at uh, this two delivering horns in there and I said to him would you like something different and he goes what, what you thinking of offering so well let me look at the shape of your face and all the piercings that you got and we can create a very nice landscape because I want to play with a bit of titanium and a bit of niobium and then, you know, just having these two things on top of your head sometimes could get in the way. Mm -hmm. And he explained that obviously you need to be very aware of space. You know, if you just do that, right. you just knock it off and yeah. it's painful. Um, so, you know, creating something that probably runs on, the, on his forehead and goes on the back or so, like creating a plate. And he seemed to be very excited, so we're going to sit down and sketch, mm. come up with some concepts. And that's the exciting part. Yeah. But again, it goes back to having the conversation with someone and learning what would be best for them. Yeah. Yeah. And mm. it's important. So when it comes to these conferences, I mean, is that where we met? Did we meet here a few years ago? Was that the first time we uh, met? No, we met at, um, I, I think it was Birmingham. Yeah. Oh, okay. There was an APP, yeah. a UK okay. APP in Birmingham. Mm -hmm. And I remember you didn't say very much to me when you came over to see me. Yeah. No, you just stared at me. I thought, okay, like, hi. <laughs> So, um, and then I thought maybe I should talk to you a little bit. And I get really awkward. People think that I'm like 
really outgoing and natural sometimes because I do this and I teach classes, but I'm like painfully awkward meeting new people. It's difficult. Yeah. I had to learn yeah. how to, you know, how to be kind of sociable, but you know, we can't all be sociable every day. But in, in a place like this in conference, when you meet somebody, we're all here for the same common subject. Mm -hmm. So it's a passion that unites lots of people. It's beautiful. How have your uh, experiences been with the conferences? Because you've done UK APP, you've done BMXNet, you came to APP in the US. Yeah. How are you enjoying that process? Um, I always love it. Uh, so I get to meet lots of people, people from all over the world. Um, the uh, conference in the US this year, I think I hugged over 250 people because wow. I only managed to get the uh, little uh, ribbon that said hugs. So that was a good thing. I loved it. Um, yeah, that was beautiful. It's always a very good atmosphere. Mm. You know, people come from all over the place. We're all a little bit jet lags, and you know, you meet up with people. You go for food. You talk about piercings. You know, they sometimes think I am a piercer. Mm. Um, well, you have a lot more knowledge than I think some people who are jewelers and jewelers only, because you you worked in studios. You worked hand in hand with studios for such a long period of time. You must have learned. I learned a, a few lot things. About yeah, the yeah, yeah. I, I had to change jewelry onto people. Mm. Um, so obviously, I had to measure up, you know, the breadth, see this and that, get, um, make people feel comfortable. I had to obviously put on gloves mm. and disinfect some stuff. And, you know, yeah, of course, I needed to learn. Mm. But um, conferences are amazing. Um, I, okay, when I left Italy, it was 19. 1989, 1990, and there were no body piercing shops back then. Um, there wasn't even a tattoo shop in my hometown. Mm. I had to go and get tattooed in Milan, in someone's home. Mm. So this was a bit underground, really. Uh, so then, obviously, the body piercing scenario came into play when, in the early 90s for me. And when I got back home, my, my hometown is Turin. Um, which is a beautiful town, by the way. You have to come and visit at some point. Um, and I see all these people that all these things are sprouted out. I go, my God, what's going on here? You know, so. Um, but it's still a little bit primitive in comparison to to other, other countries. Mm -hmm. I, I well, I feel like. The information makes its way around in almost a predictable way. A lot of trends, for better or worse, start in the US and then they can kind of make their way to the UK and then spread across Europe and spread yeah. out that way. Yeah. Mm. So the conference scenario is good. I didn't know anything about this uh, up until when the shop closed uh, about three years ago, mm. roughly, because you know I was quite happy. I was a jeweler. I didn't have to make too much effort. The orders were in weekly. Uh, they were processed within no time, and there was always a continuous replacement of jewelry. So, you know, it was a kind of happy, isolated life in a way. Mm -hmm. And then when that ended, I just thought, oh my God, what's going to happen? You know, uh, am I still going to be able to make jewelry for body piercing, or is it going to be like engagement rings and? Um, normal, let's call it, between brackets, jewelry. Mm -hmm. um, or although I made some pretty unusual things, I went into the British Museum. Yeah, that's really cool. And um, I worked for um, a fine artist, so some stuff went into the Tate Britain. Um, 
and I think one of the pieces from this guy is also in the MoMA. Mm. Um, so I've, I've been quite lucky and yeah. spoiled in many ways, you know, but um, I like to challenge and I think it's always important to, to try to push yourself, no matter what you do. Always try to be the best you can. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's so, what I'm trying for. Absolutely, and you are. Worldwide. So, up until three years ago, I didn't know about the uh, UK APP meet, um, group. Mm -hmm. I go and meet up with the Pierces, which are a lot of fun. Uh, if some somebody is around from abroad, I try to meet up with them because um, it's good and it's a community. It's a really beautiful web. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I remember one of my trips to London. We went out for tea, and then went in Vegas we went to the museum, and then in Vegas we went out and we got an American style buffet dinner. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's good. What, what, like, have you been having a, a, a good response to piercers at conferences, or do you feel like sometimes you have to kind of educate them as to what you're making for them to understand it enough to place an order? Um, normally, people approach me um, and they ask me because they know I do lots of bespoke, mm -hmm. and I think that is my winning card in many ways. If nobody has it, they know they can ask me. Mm -hmm. Um, and I can probably have it made in a lot less time than a bigger company across the pond. Yeah, and they know that if they have a question, they can ask you specifically yeah. instead and of just also, a And also, you know, person. there's the posting scenario. They can ask me on the phone. Mm -hmm. I'm very approachable uh, from that point of view. Um, and I can get information to people like that. Mm -hmm. So, how did the how did the U.S. market respond to you at conference? Do you think it was more difficult if people didn't already because at UK APP more people might know your name and know other piercers using Nobody your jewelry. Nobody can pronounce it. Come on, Danila okay. Tarsinale is so difficult. Although I actually have some family in the US, yeah. Um, so um, people have a difficulty with my name. So somebody actually asked me, uh, and I was pinchy. He said, "Oh, I can't pronounce your name. Can you not change it?" I said, "Well, no, I shouldn't do that." No. Um, but um, I'm sure they will remember. They can remember DT jewelry. Mm -hmm. It's fine. It's not too difficult. Um, and I think the biggest thing for me, actually, probably the biggest challenge more than making the jewelry or so, is the branding uh, scenario because everybody needs to recognize something as a brand. I'm an artisan. Mm -hmm. This is what I am. And for me, just having to come up with a logo, although I got the one that is I use for the last um, 25 and not 27 years now, perhaps. Um, that is the DT in Gothic. Um, I don't want to shy away from it. It's me. It's mm -hmm. me from I was a goth, and still I am in some ways. Um, so yeah, the branding element where people need to see this large letters and this and that and the other. It's now become something important, and I can see it's important also for body piercing shops or tattoo shops that yeah. need to have a logo. Yeah. Because people want stickers and they want the bag and they want the products that they sell for the sun solution or so to have the branding. Mm -hmm. So people haven't recognized your brand enough to really latch on to it yet. I say that probably I'm new to some people. Um, but not new to others. I'm a kind of hidden treasure, I mm -hmm. say. 
Um, but you know, I think gradually this will happen. Yeah. Yeah. I well, it to happen. Keep really. coming to conferences. I, oh, I've never met anyone who has seen or used your jewelry and has said something negative about it. So I think when people like see the jewelry and they see the quality of it of what you make from from nothing and you make the entire process, you know, uh, I think people really like that and really respect that because I've seen the 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 jewelers who they might have a strong brand, but they're not the ones making the jewelry or doing quality control of the jewelry, and they just have junior jewelers making everything, and the, you can see it in the quality where you just can't you can't put your own brand on that like you can't sell that in your own shop and be proud of it because you look at it and it's it's not made very well you know but everybody like speaks really well of your jewelry I think there is markets for different people there's some people that like more the sort of organic looking uh, stone setting or less polish but for me a very high polish is a very important it goes into your skin I care mm -hmm. um, so before things go out I look at them with an eye loop for the setting, for the quality of the stones. So if maybe there is a tiny crack that the setter has done and I'm not realized, you know, I, it's quality control, it's important. Mm. Before it goes out, it gets looked at at least two or three times. Yeah, because I've dealt with vendors where they don't do any of that. And mm -hmm. then, yeah, plenty, unfortunately, oh. plenty. Uh, not so much the established brands that have been around for a long time, but the ones that pop up, you know, and they say like, Oh, it's it's so cheap and I can get it for you so quickly and it's like yeah but why is it so much cheaper and why is it so quick and because maybe quality control issues I think something if it's cheap and cheerful something's gonna suffer or somebody has suffered in right. the making um, normally this this is what happens but I mean I, I work long hours as I said for me it's very important to be able to follow the process mm -hmm. all the way through and and so that people know that actually a person in Hutton Garden, London, made this for you. Mm -hmm. I think it's quite special, yeah. rather than a machine. Well, a, a, a machine good way to, to think about it, again, from the piercer side is when clients come into the studio and if they say, oh, you know, why is it so expensive and you can't do it cheaper? And then we get almost uh, almost hurt, almost, almost offended as piercers thinking, well, we're doing all these things for you with our sterilization and our training and our studio. But then some of those same piercers can look at goldsmiths and, and jewelers and vendors and be like, well, I don't want to pay that much from this vendor and I'm going to, I'm going to pay this from this vendor, but we're kind of doing the same things that offend us as, mm. as piercers. So, um, I do listen to piercers because I had some people saying, oh my God, some of these pieces, I won't be able to sell them in my studio because I find, if I may say that, um, some people have a markup that is a little bit too high. But I can get it with, with high ticket pieces. Sometimes people might get intimidated because they might not think that they'll be able to turn it around yeah. in their studio. But I, I think if you can, going back to what we said earlier, if you can have not so much a sales technique, but if you can present the jewelry as it's worth this much money, not it costs this much money, I think people can see jewelry and, and appreciate it and appreciate its, its quality and its value. But sometimes they get intimidated by how they do that. Um, it all depends from how people present themselves in mm. the studio. So I recently was in, um, in a place in, uh, in Europe where I did a pop-up shop and I absolutely love the way this lady 
sits with her clients and they sit with her and it's a very comfortable uh, situation like um, they're like friends mm -hmm. so they talk about what they want and what not there is a mirror there and it's a very comfortable situation where they get to choose the jewelry and she says oh, I think this look better on this side now let's put this here mm -hmm. so and I think establishing this sort of behavior or um, relationship, you know, with your clients is very important. They trust you with their skin. Yeah, I mean that's the best sales experiences that I have in my shop because if I if I tried to make it just like point at the thing you want and I'll put it in, I don't I don't enjoy that and I don't think the clients enjoy that. But if it's like okay, tell me tell me what you're interested in. You know, do you have a favorite color or a least favorite color or you know, have you thought about maybe using something that accentuates your anatomy and I think this piece would look really good here instead of here and look in the mirror and I'll hold it up. And those, those interactions are a lot better for both of us. Yeah, yeah. and also I think that when somebody walks in, um, having a conversation where you say, do you need any help? It doesn't lead anywhere because mm -hmm. they can say no right. and then the conversation is over. Yeah, yeah. So, um, if you say, hey, hi, how are you? Mm -hmm. uh, open-ended questions. You open a question yeah. and if you sit them with shopping bags or mm -hmm. so, oh, have you been shopping today? Where mm -hmm. did you go? You, yeah. know, you make them feel comfortable. Walking into a shop is not always comfortable for everybody. Mm -hmm. People can be awkward. So yeah, talking to the clients and say, oh, where have you been today? Are you going out to a party later? Mm -hmm. uh, what are you going to be wearing tonight? You know, What color is it going to be? So a few questions because you need to make people feel comfortable obviously not everybody comes in to have a chat sure so it's important to look at people's body language mm -hmm. and understand whether you know they're quite happy to chat to you i can tell sometimes that the, the best approach is to give them as much information as they want and then give them time to digest the information you know if you have any questions i'll be right over here feel free to look around you know just to let you know this and that different information and then kind of step back just a little bit because sometimes, like for me, if I go into a shop uh, and I want to look at things, you know, electronics or whatever, I want to look, maybe ask a question and then think and decide what I want. So sometimes people want that. Sometimes people want their hand held through the entire process. Sometimes people want different things. And as body piercers, uh, we might think, okay, this is my 20th or 30th client of the day, but for them, you're their only body piercer that day, or ever, sometimes. So you need to really kind of think, like, what gives them the best experience? Yeah, and sometimes it's difficult, obviously. If it's like late in the day, you want to wrap up and go sure. home, and there's somebody that wants to make you pull out all the jewelry, mm -hmm. and then they, they say, oh, I'm going to think about it. Yeah. You know, in England, when you say, I'm going to think about it. That means no. The yeah. polite no. <laughs> yeah, I think it's the same everywhere, but sometimes people <laughs> genuinely do want to think a little bit. Sometimes, like, they... They might be interested in a piercing, but not that day. They want to come in and see what you have available and then maybe come back when they've made a decision or, or something like that. You have to definitely kind of listen to them, watch their body language, and just see what's appropriate, I think. Yeah, yeah I think so. But other than that, you know, it's always good to... It's difficult to understand sometimes if you're somebody that is new on a counter. Mm -hmm. You know, nobody gives you a lesson in body language. Sure. How do you learn? Yeah. Oh, I had to. I had to learn just through repetition, and, exactly. and you have to try your full approach every time. And sometimes piercers they feel 
silly or awkward or things like that. And it's like, well, how else, how else will you practice? You have to practice your sales approach the same way you practice your piercing. Yeah. And another thing that I notice, and this has happened several times, when you show things to people, you know, you live it there and, and then you take it away. And that, that is where they make the decision and say, oh no, actually I'm going to take that. Okay. Yeah. And I find that often, you know, you live it there for a moment, so you put it onto your desk or wherever you use, maybe to display jewelry, probably have a, a little nice tray that look quite nice and fancy. So, and um, and then in the moment in which you take it away from them and put it back in the cabinet, that is where they make their decision. Because mm. yeah. you kind of given them the chance to familiarize themselves with the piece for a few seconds, and mm. in their head they already kind of have it. Yeah. Okay. And then you start to take it away, and then they get this instinct of if I don't get it now, someone else is going to get it. Yeah. 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 That's a good. That's a good tip. Yeah. But I find that for the people that can't quite afford a piece, you just said to let them know that it is possible to maybe put down a deposit or, as I said earlier, um, the sale of vouchers becomes very, very convenient at this stage, especially Christmas. Um, when I was working on the counter, uh, before Christmas we'll mainly sell vouchers. Because mm. you don't want to buy a piece of jewelry for body piercing, you can't take back. That's, that's exactly how I present it. Sometimes people come in around the holidays and say, I want to get something for my, my wife or my boyfriend or whatever, and I'll say, well, you know, I, I would really want to see the piercing first so I know the size, so why don't you get a gift certificate, a voucher, and then bring them in and we can give them the full experience and you know fit them properly and all those things. Yeah, and there's a thing that I suggest to do also to um, other peers is that it's just like to get people in for an evening or so where you do a VIP evening uh, with a, maybe a bit of sparkling wine in a time way, a bit of Prosecco or so, uh, like a VIP experience where they get restyling. And that, in that way, allows you to clean the jewelry, obviously for a fee, um, put it, swap it around, and sell them some new jewelry mm -hmm. as well. And people love the experience mm. because, in that way, it's, a, it's like a, a me time experience for them, obviously. Yeah. Um, but it's a pampering, and in the same way, when we go to have a massage or right. get our nails done, right. we're looking for that experience. Those are some of my best jewelry clients. The ones who have come back three or four or five times and sometimes piercers can get frustrated by that by thinking like, oh, this person, I'm going to need to give them 45 minutes or an hour. But I love it because those people come in and I'm like, oh, perfect. I'm going to be with them for 45 minutes or an hour and I'm going to show them all the things that I know that they'll like because I've already started to learn what they like a little bit. Uh, and then it's so much easier to have these, these larger ticket sales. I, I would have clients that would come back three or four times and they would get full new sets of jewelry and you know five and six hundred dollar sales every other month from the same person and it's because you've built that comfort for them and for them it's this whole experience the same thing is going to a spa or doing something else you're their yeah. piercing spa you're the piercing spa and this is something very important to consider and although it's very difficult sometimes when somebody sees you for the first time the form an opinion and if you may be you know, in a particularly bad mood, um, particularly good mood, they'll think you're always moody. Sure, so, which I have had it's, a lot. It's difficult. It's yeah. really difficult. But about the same token, you know, you sometimes they come back and you can make up. 
Sure. I, I've tried. You know, there have been times where I've been stressed. You know, I'm, I don't do any appointments. I do all walk-ins. So sometimes people come in and I'm very frazzled. I'm in the middle of 10 things at once and, you know, they have to wait and I'm trying to rush in between clients, you know. Uh, and then they've, if they come back another time, I'll really have to slow things down and just be like, all right, I know last time you didn't really get the best experience, you know. I'm going to slow things down and I'm going to make sure that you get all the personal attention and detail that I can give you. And because there, there were points earlier, I'm also an ex-goth person and for a long time I was like, I was the rude person in the shop. I was the person where it's like, oh, I have to, you know, him, you know, like a good piercer, but not a good personality. And I had to, as I got older and as I got more mature, I had to realize like, I'm, I'm there to give people a customer service experience, not just a good piercing. But if I can do a really good piercing, but I'm an asshole to do it, like I'm not a good piercer. To be a good piercer, you have to be good at multiple sides of it. The customer interactions, the customer service, as well as the, the performance of the piercing. Yeah. Um, there's something I would like to say to people as well in order to, um, you know, start thinking if they're going to be selling jewelry uh, in gold is, okay, so if you're a studio that has an area where um, it's not particularly affluent, it is a good idea to start writing down what people ask you the most. And if you can't sell jewelry just yet, select a company that you really like the work of and start having pictures. So for instance, uh, when I was working at Interview, I uh, printed out quite large images of jewelry that were in the piercing room. And, um, and also there was like a, uh, a portfolio of old jewelry that was worn mm. so that people could look at. And also, if you're not quite familiar with stones, buy a little book on uh, gemology just to familiarize yourself with the names, for instance, because you know, if you have somebody that comes in and say, oh, I would like this uh, Alexandrite and you don't know what it is, mm-hmm. Um, you're not going to look very professional. Sure. So it's important to know that there are the things apart from CZs or titanium mm. or so. Um, so it's, it's, good, it's a good learning experience. And if you can, um, get some samples of, of colors of stone so that if people don't recognize that on the particular book that you're going to show them, um, they can actually see in real life, you got a little sample, okay, this is garnet, this is an obsidian, this is a uh, emerald, or if you don't want to have an emerald because it's too expensive, you can just um, probably show the picture for that one. But it's important to have a palette of colors mm. and also be sensitive to um, what colors people like. Obviously, as a piercer, you know what you're selling and you know what is in fashion. So do read fashion magazines for girls, Mm -hmm. for young girls, because if your clientele is very young, you need to be aware of what the singer that they like. Or the seasonal trends, yeah. Pantone was was a really big thing for me, is Mm -hmm. like seeing the Pantone colors for the next season or the next year, and trying to, especially when you're ordering jewelry months ahead of time, you wanna think like, okay, well what colors will be good for spring? versus winter and you know what will be the trends for next year and maybe try to skew your jewelry co- your your color palette towards those upcoming trends yeah and also if you're um, it's always good to go around in your local shops uh, shops for people that are up to up to 20 25 
and see what the colors are for clotting mm -hmm. and then accordingly choose or at least have one item yeah. what is in fashion mm -hmm. and ask people generally oh what do you think of the latest fashion that opens up a, uh, a conversation when you're piercing somebody so in that way you're still doing your market research um, for instance now I can see that in the UK for the UK fashion the colors are kind of uh, yellow and orange mm. I but never would have thought that yeah. Yellow and orange, but is this going to translate into into the um, fashion onto the jewelry itself? Mm. I just been to a big show which was International Jewelry London. I was doing a demonstration there for wax carving, and the color scheme seemed to be like maybe clear diamonds, pearls. Pearls are big at the moment. Pearls are come back, and for men as well. I'd like to see more men wearing black pearls, blue pearls, akoya pearls, mm -hmm. all sorts. Because mm -hmm. they look good. Yeah. In the past, um, and in places like India or Rajasthan, men would wear lots of pearls. Why not now? Yeah, yeah. Well, Men wear a lot more adorned than we see now, if you think about That's one of the harder things ideas, right yeah. now. I think a lot of piercers would say that their clientele skews very sharply to female. Uh, but... I think so many piercers being male, like you have to find a way to, to make it cool again and to make it accessible for, for men to wear all this different jewelry because lots of men in the States will have their ear lobes pierced, but nothing else, you know? So sometimes you have to kind of try to draw them in. And I mean, sometimes you use different terminology, more masculine terminology sometimes, you know? And I'll notice that a lot of uh, like masculine clients will want you know, more like onyx colors and things that don't have a lot of shine or sparkle, things like that, so. Do you know there are some pearls now that have facets? Yeah. Oh yeah. You can, you can cut a pearl? Yeah, I carve them really? as well. Yeah, there are also some other people that carve onto, onto pearls, make mm. little skulls. I made some little tiny garlics, mm. out of, uh, but they were for a particular collection. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's possible to carve onto pearls, mm. definitely. That's cool. And in Germany, there are some companies that put lots of facets on them. And they don't look like pearls anymore because obviously they lost the shine. Mm. So they have more appeal for men as well. Mm. But it's all interesting. But it's a matter, as I said, we said we say all this along, uh, all of that long. But um, educating people and say, for instance, if I had a shop and I wanted to gain in some a clientele that wanted to buy gold, I would invite a bunch of people along and say. I'm going to present you some of the jewelry and I'm going to show you what you could have. Mm. And also, you know, quite a lot of pierces, pierce uh, children. Um, children are going to grow up into adults. So, and if they, this time around, they're only going to get the real lobes piercing. When they grow up, they're going to come back to you again mm -hmm. to get something else. I've had that. I've had people yeah. that I've been piercing since they were 10 and now they're 30 and they're bringing in their children now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, I if I was a piercer, I'd pierce kids. Mm -hmm. I do. Yeah, it's. Yeah, I'm not a. I'm not a kid person. So sometimes it's like mm -hmm. a bit of a struggle for me. Yeah, you know, I'm but sure it I'm, is. I'm learning to be a better piercer for smaller children, because so many people want that service now. They don't want to go to the mall, which is good. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, what else? There are some kind of suggestions I wanted to give. I'm just like thinking about it. Oh, and okay, so 
There's something I want to say actually. Um, I can see that in the US, the uh, some of the shops that are most more successful are the ones that look more like a jewelry shop, and then they have a piercing facility. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so probably they're able to sell more jewelry because the look of the displays are more is more professional, and that is important. Um, and also maybe they leave the door open so people are invited to come in. So probably they're in places that are warmer or so. Um, and I can see that in the UK, because obviously we had some names, can I say the name? Sure. Maria Tash has actually opened a new door for people because she actually made um, perhaps the jewelry become more known that is not only for people that are like punk rockers or, or so. Mm -hmm. um, and in that way, a lot more. Um, normal, straightforward jewelry shops are actually going to be selling and having a piercer themselves. Yeah, so that's, that's been a huge explosion around. because those brands don't present it as counterculture. They present it as high fashion and that changes everyone's minds because people are already into high fashion. They might yeah. not be into counterculture. Yeah, in fact one of the hashtags that I use a lot is luxury fashion. Mm. and. Um, it's important. It's a totally different type of clientele. Um, now, if I didn't know anything about gold or so, and I went into a shop and I saw only jewelry for body piercing that is sold to me for very little, and then all of a sudden we're introducing a gold, I'm not going to expect to be paying a lot more than the, the uh, what is used as um, for implantation. Simple because I go into a shop and I, I'm used to see I don't know in the US uh, what sort of price one will sell a normal barbell or a BCR. Like quality or like crap? Um, I don't know. Let's say average. So a, a good titanium barbell, like a two millimeter barbell, you know, thirty thirty-five dollars. Which is not very much at all. But then if you were to have that in gold, it mm -hmm. would be. Hundreds. Uh, hundreds, yeah. yeah, for good quality. So obviously the jump is huge. Mm. But if you're a, a jewelry shop and you're already selling watches that are in titanium, for instance, mm. or other jewelry which is made out of titanium and it's not so cheaply priced, then for you it's a lot easier to say, well, this labrette stud in titanium is 80 pounds. Mm. Um, this thing in gold is, I don't know, example, 200. Mm. So you got price comparability and it's all pretty much on the same level. So you know that people will come in there and think, okay, I'll put this on my credit card. Or some people now are um, uh, offering a way to pay where um, the shop gets paid straight away, but the other company is actually taken as a credit. Mm. So there are different options. It's just how you want to market yourself. Yeah, I, I, I've had to play a lot of catch up because for so much of my career, I wasn't focusing on the jewelry and the quality of the jewelry. And then when the clientele started leaning towards like, well, I, I, want, I want high quality jewelry and I want precious metals and I want precious stones, uh, I had to learn a lot of that. Not just how to get it, I had to learn how to display it, how to talk about it, how to make the person understand why this one is 300 but this one is 50 you know and not see the 300 dollar one as uh, 
a ripoff or not see the $50 one as garbage, you know? So it's, it's this con constant balance of like, how do I present what I have and how do I give them all the information I can about it? What do I need to learn mm -hmm. about buying it and maintaining it? And as a rule of thumb as well, I find that when there is a very expensive, um, or let's call it high price ticket, a piece of jewelry in the cabinet, uh, and people are attracted to that, you might not be selling that straight away, but mm. you sell the ones that are notched there. Sure, yeah. Uh, so that, in a way, having a small selection of items that are um, more exclusive will help you to sell mm -hmm. the other pieces. Case candy. I think a lot case of people candy? refer to it as case candy. Yeah. yeah. Um, and are the same token is inspiring, but if you think that you're not going to sell those, take them out of the cabinet for mm -hmm. a while and then make them reappear a lot later, nicely repolished or mm -hmm. so, because if people see that day in, day out all the time, they think they it's not moving, it. they, right. get, they get moved, uh, used to it. And also changing the jewelry around uh, time to time because obviously it's like freshen up, refreshing the cabinet. Mm -hmm. It's important. So even swapping because people come in and think, oh, I, saw, I thought I saw that piece there. Yeah. It's not there anymore. You sold it. Mm -hmm. You still got it. Um, or so. So when you remove things, you find the people who want them. Yeah. And if you give an idea of exclusivity, um, I'm only going to have two of these. Or... Um, this is the only piece that I have, mm -hmm. or you create a little uh, list of people who are interested in your gold and they are your VIP clientele, or you can also divide them as, um, um, you know, the people that probably would go um, more for more traditional or more eccentric mm -hmm. or they want more bespoke, then you have a list of people and you know when to call them to say, I got these new pieces in the shop. Yeah. You're the first person to see them. I've, I've done that before with clients because sometimes clients come in and you get an idea for, you know, this person always wants rose gold with these kinds of settings, with these kinds of stones. And then when you get a new order in, sometimes it might take you a few days or a week to process it and actually yeah. get it out in the display. I'll email those people and I'll say like, oh, hey, you know, here's a quick picture. I have a few pieces that you might be interested in. Do you want to come and take a look at it before it goes into the display case? And lots of times people will just come in and they'll buy it right away because it's that same thing. They don't want to have someone else have the opportunity to buy this jewelry before them. So yeah. sometimes they'll just grab it before it even gets to yeah, the case. But this also goes back to the experience because mm. obviously you, you thought about them. Yeah. Um, what I see when I do the, the conference is that lots of piercers are actually looking for jewelry for their special clients or they have a mind and they they have this very good relationship with their clients as well where they send them the picture say i send this in a photo of you and that as a customer experience is amazing it is just the fact that you can even sometimes it's just remembering someone's name but to the point where you can remember their tastes or the sizes that they wear. They, they really appreciate that because then they see you as someone who values them, not just as like, I'm a commodity to them. You know, I'm, I'm just a, another ticket to them. It's like, I'm a, I'm a person and they know what I like and they've thought of me and they've curated this piece for me. You know, mm. it, people can really appreciate that stuff. Yeah, and these days now that there is obviously all the social media, people are quite well informed. Mm or what is there and what not. And often 
I get pictures of things where, oh, can you do this? And I say, well, I don't really like to make copies because that company is invested into mm. that. And I think if you want that particular item, you should just go to them. Right. Um, Which is very rare and very respectable to hear from a jeweler. But I'm also a designer, so I wouldn't want somebody sure. doing that to me. Yeah. You know, obviously. Um, however, you can have something that is probably similar, but it can't be exactly the same design. Mm. It, it's not fair. Inspiration rather than theft. Yes, inspiration, it's okay. You know, you can modify things. And also sometimes um, people have a very romantic idea on... Um, what is visible and what not within a certain price range mm -hmm. as well. But, you know, always trying to fit within budgets. Mm -hmm. um, and another thing that I suggest to people normally when they got clients um, is to not just like to lose the sale entirely, is to ask the client, um, do you have a particular budget in mind? Because exactly we, can, we can try to work within that, mm -hmm. maybe by altering the thickness of the piece or the internal diameter, the size of the stones, mm -hmm. and in that way, they're happy, you're happy, right. I'm happy. That's exactly, exactly what I do and exactly what I try to explain to other piercers too. If you get to a point where someone gets intimidated by a price, if they look at something and they say, I, I love that, and then you're like, all right, that's great. It would, it would be $450. Uh, and if they get that immediate retraction, most of the time their instinct is going to be, okay, what's the cheapest thing you have? Not like what fits them. So what I, if they come back with that, like, oh, you know, just show me the cheapest. Then I'll say, well, you know, again, you can tell me your comfortable budget and I can tell you exactly what fits that. You know, rather than a white diamond, have you thought about maybe a white opal or, you know, maybe something like that is very chunky and it's using a lot of gold. Have you thought about maybe something with a lower profile that's maybe a little bit less gold and maybe would be yeah. a bit more affordable for you? I, I try to avoid words like expensive, cheap, things like that. So when people say, what's your cheapest? I'll say, well, you know, our, our lowest cost would be the titanium pieces, you know, but we have lots of affordable gold too. And, you know, tell me what your budget is and I'm happy to work with you. Things like that are much softer. And I, I always call it a top-down sales approach because you want to start with, obviously, the, the fanciest thing that they like the most. But if that doesn't work for them, you want to slowly come down and be like, okay, this is a little bit less, this is a little bit less, this is a little bit less. But if you try to do bottom-up and you say, here's the titanium, and if you want to spend a bit more, you can do this. And spend a bit more, you can do this. And if you want to spend a lot more, you can do this. That's very difficult. I think it's also good to negotiate sometimes. Mm. So, but I'm sure that experience um, is everything sometimes. Yeah. And obviously, you might miss the sale today, perhaps, and then the next time around, you learn how to deal with a client. I, I have. I'm not saying I about you. But well, no, um, but in general, that's, a, in that's general, exactly what I had to do. Um, you know, we all learn every day. Mm. Yeah. So when, um, when I learned, oh, um, obviously, uh, some in some areas, body piercing jewelry is a bit more difficult to sell. So obviously, I had to create some items that are a bit more approachable as a price. I considered um, maybe doing some items in 14 carats. So I would launch a DT14 uh, line, but then again, I thought 
do I really want to blur that boundary? Mm -hmm. Because I'm more about the quality and right. the exclusivity, and I can guarantee you that within my range of products, you can still get something that is an 18 karat gold that will fit the bill for you, mm -hmm. you know? So um, I don't have to go to a um, um, 14 karat gold. Mm -hmm. So you get a better quality for what what you spend. Yeah, yeah. But again, it's all just knowing your, knowing your market, knowing your clientele, and, and being able to explain your product correctly. Yeah, 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 yeah definitely. Also, um, calling a designer in into your studio to, to present the product to, to your audience, I think it's a good thing to do. I've mm. done that with some clients and it's actually made their sales a lot different. Mm. I'm sure, yeah. Being able to be like, this is the actual artisan yeah, that made, made the it. designer. Rather than just like you're buying it from a website or something. Yeah, yeah. I am actually a person. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a machine. Yeah. Uh, so that's probably a good place to to wrap it up a little bit. Tell tell the people again where they can find you online or. Okay, that is www.danilatarsinalejewelry.com, and on Instagram is Danila underscore Tarsinale. But if normally you look for Danila, which is D A N I L A. And then jewelry onto Google, I'm about to come up. Okay. It's a pretty unique name, and normally actually it's a Russian name and for a man, which I'm not, as you can see. I've noticed. Yeah, there you go. So it's been lovely talking to you. Yeah, thank you for talking. I've wanted to get you on here for a while, and we just haven't been able yeah. to line up our schedules. It's been very difficult, and uh, sorry I had a bit of a sore throat today. All right, thanks for talking to me, Danella. Uh, also, just that voice is very soothing. I could probably go back and listen to this podcast episode uh, and just lull myself into a, a deep slumber. But uh, really fun just talking to somebody and getting more information about the body jewelry that we use every single day of our careers. If you happen to be interested in learning a bit more and you wanted to come to those full-day freehand seminars November 18th and 19th in Atlanta, you can find all that information online at precisionbodyarts.com seminars or follow Body Art Education by Ryan Willett on Facebook. Uh, feel free to email me too if you have any questions or if you want to just go ahead and register, you can get me at ryanpba at gmail.com. Uh, that's about it for me today. I think I'm going to actually have a little bit of a day off. It's two o'clock right now when I'm finishing this up. Uh, so that means I have the rest of the day to myself. It's amazing. I don't have to do anything work-related today. So I uh, hope you're having fun. Hope you love body piercing as much as I do, and I'll be back next week. For more information about the show, visit piercingwizardpodcast.com or like Piercing Wizard Podcast on Facebook. For more info about your host, visit precisionbodyarts.com or search Ryan PBA on Facebook, Instagram, and Tumblr. If you enjoy the show, you can subscribe on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. Music by Benny B. Blanco. Show copyright 2017, Precision Body Arts, LLC. All rights reserved.